1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It is unconscionable what this decision will do to the American people.
0: I do not think that 50% of America should be told that they have to put their bodies at risk of life or death without their consent.
2: Hey everybody, welcome into another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. I am Mike Leon and I'm Nick Saveri. On the program today, a special episode uh, dedicated to the fight for women's reproductive rights as this issue is taking center stage right now in the United States after the recent draft opinion release from Justice Alito and some of the plans to overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, Nick and I will discuss the release, the subsequent impact across the country and joining us later on in the program, NPR political reporter Deepa Shivaram. She's going to be joining us. She's been covering this, wrote a fantastic piece, a great piece about the history of the anti-abortion movement in this country. So she's going to be on later on in the program to help us break this all down. First, I say hello to Nick Saveri. Nick, um, quick pleasantries, but I want to get really your take when this came down about the political leak, uh, excuse me, political getting access to the leak of this draft. Where were you when you kind of heard about this? I'm not sure if it was even that I texted it to you or, or vice versa. Uh, give me some of your initial i man I heard this, and you're like, see it's happening
1: yeah i I forgot you know how I sort of got tipped off to it. Um, yeah, my reaction was that I'm not surprised that someone leaked it um, a clerk or whomever I, I I think we're getting a little too quick to make assumptions as to the kind like the you know Professional classification, of the person who did this you know, was the clerk or a secretary, who knows? Uh, I'm not surprised it happened, though. Um, this is something that's very jarring. This is an issue that has that's always been a key divider. It, it's a is a just a nexus in the public discourse right now. It's always been that way for as long as I've lived. Same with you. I mean, since the 1970s, especially since the decision of Roe versus Wade in 1973, this has been Basically, what has helped separate people politically, one of the biggest things. Um, so I wasn't surprised that someone felt passionate to put it out there. It was interesting because it, basically there was a split. You had one side of people who are more offended that this happened, you know, because this is a what feels like a violation of the of the court. You know, someone just went ahead and took a draft and made it public. That's that's a huge no no. Right. Um, then the other side is the people who, and this is where I fell into, of people who are just rightfully disturbed and outraged that this is on the table, then there's, you know, and I'm also jaded too. where I'm not surprised it's a conservative leaning court. This has always felt like a matter that conservatives will argue should live within state's purview. Um, I'm not one of them, but this was just going to, this was on its way. uh, Especially when we've seen all these cases in Texas, Florida, Louisiana just recently is now, I think in a seven, seven to two uh, decision among their, um, And they're a state assembly, I believe, um, that is looking to make abortion classified as a homicide.
2: Right.
1: Um, This is real. And every right-leaning state, right-leaning governor is trying to make an effort to get this to the court. What that decision or the draft tells us is that there are some people on this court, Justice Alito being a good example, who is anticipating this. And that's the scary part is that this doesn't seem like a conversation. This seems like a done deal.
2: Well you know, you you said a couple of things there. So let's get into our first segment here, which is about, you know, the leaked draft opinion that happened last week on Monday. If the Supreme Court does roll back the landmark decision of Roe Roe v. Wade, as written by Justice Alito in that draft opinion, which is specifically around abortion rights, um, then it would, like you said, go back to the states and become a state by state issue. Some states protecting access, which are more obviously democratic leaning, and others implementing trigger laws that would ban the procedure the moment this law is reversed and struck down. Now, Justice Chief Justice John Roberts confirmed last week that the the draft opinion is real; it's valid. He confirmed the authenticity of it, and so they are now launching an investigation, which you mentioned. We're going to get into later on with with Deepa about. Uh, the leak almost being the same story as the contents of the leak, because there is you know, uh, something that I would love to get a political reporter's uh, opinion on in, in terms of like which one should be more valid, the contents of the leak or the actual leak itself. But anyway, Chief Justice Roberts said that he has ordered the marshal of the court to launch an investigation to determine who leaked the document to political. Uh, political was the first site that had access to this and the, dra- the 98 page draft opinion. Now, a, the Center for Reproductive Rights data found that 23 states would institute bans with trigger laws that are already on the books in 13 of them. A second abortion rights advocacy group, this is according to NBC News, the, the and the Guttermacher Institute, they've counted 26 states that they consider certain or likely to ban abortion based on laws passed before and after Roe in the event it was overturned. You know, one of the things I wanted to mention real quick before I give some more numbers is- the fight is not so much about abortion itself. It's about what these clinics offer in terms of helping women, right? With uh, healthcare equity, birth control plans, sexual education, and then access to abortions. So it's not so much about this fight for people to have abortions. That's a part of it. It's about women being able to choose what they do with their bodies. I want to make sure everybody knows that's where this issue should stand. Um, Let me give you some numbers real quick about some of these states that right now are introducing abortion bans and kind of may have triggered this draft opinion uh, from Justice Alito and why we're here. Uh, Alabama, Georgia, Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri, Ohio right now all have abortion bans that are on the books. Alabama's one is banning abortion from the time a person is known to be pregnant with no exceptions for rape or incest. State could investigate miscarriages. Uh, Georgia has a a ban at six weeks. State could investigate miscarriages and doctors that could perform the abortions could be sentenced up to 10 years of prison. Kentucky, where Governor Beshear actually struck down something, but then this legislature overruled him in a Republican majority. They ban abortion at six weeks. They criminalize the providers. This is still under challenge in federal court. The Mississippi ban, which you heard about, is banning abortion at six weeks. No exceptions for rape or incest. That case is now before the Supreme Court, as well as the, uh, I believe, the Florida case as well, which is a 15 week ban. Uh, Texas has the heartbeat one at six weeks as well, which I did not mention Missouri is banning abortion at eight weeks with no exceptions for rape or incest. The state can investigate mis- miscarriage again, and doctors could be sentenced to up to 15 years in prison. And in Ohio, like I mentioned, they're banning abortion at six weeks with no exceptions for rape or incest. Doctors could be sentenced to up to one year in prison. Oh, nice. Well, only one year in prison. Jesus. Uh, sorry, I didn't want to get off on the tangent there. Um, so those are some of the states that you're seeing about the different uh, legislations excuse me, the different laws that would be enacted that would be triggered if this were got sent back to the states. Um, I want to read a little bit of Justice Alito's draft opinion, which obviously got leaked to Politico. This is uh, directly from Justice Alito's opinion. It says, we hold that Roe and Casey, the two landmark uh, cases involving abortion and reproductive rights, must be overruled. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. That provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution, but any such right must be deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition and implicit in the concept of order liberty. Now, one of the things that I took away real quick just from that, is, if you remember when we had Dr. Lindsay Chavinsky on, the, the famous presidential historian, she mentioned the Constitution doesn't mention a ton of things like airplanes or that she can wear pants. And so to literally interpret the Constitution, you know, over a 250, 300 year period uh, is going to be tough to do because you're not going to see certain things just based on the way uh, life has evolved and technology has evolved. Um, so I just thought of that real quick before you go. At the time, this is one more thing from Justice Alito's opinion that I thought was interesting here. He says here in the opinion, at the time of Roe, 30 states still prohibited abortion at all stages. In the years prior to that decision, about a third of the states had liberalized their laws, but Roe abruptly ended that political process. It imposed the same highly restrictive regime on the entire nation, and it effectively struck down the abortion laws of every single state, as Justice Brian excuse me, Byron White aptly put it in his dissent. The decision represented the exercise of raw judicial power. Nick, I just gave the numbers uh, as we look at the map, and I, I didn't even mention there's other states as part of that 13, Michigan and Wisconsin have anti-abortion laws that kind of predate role that would go into effect, Arkansas and North Dakota as well um florida i mentioned about the 15-week abortion ban that's set to take an effect in july indiana has one that their legislature and their legislature excuse me has enacted dozens of restrictions um and obviously we heard uh, well we didn't hear i heard excuse me if you didn't hear senator chuck schumer was on the senate floor this past week talking about some type of uh, legislation for congress to pass to codify Uh, the abortion laws that are already in place in this country at the federal level. Uh, Obviously, they don't have the majority in that. So unless the filibuster is struck down, there'll be no way to pass that. Okay. I gave all of that summation. I gave everything involving all the different states, read some of the opinion from Justice Alito, your initial takeaways on all of this.
1: You know, it reminds me a little of when the Voting Rights Act was struck down, um, You know, Justice Roberts' decision basically said that the level of racism that required, you know, that passage um, to go through, you know, the Voting Rights Act in 1965, was no longer necessary. And of course, as soon as it happened, immediately some states start to enact voter laws. Um, And you have to ask yourself, where is this threat? Of, of our elections coming from. Um, that was the exact reaction I had to this that with the potential of this decision being overturned, states having this passion to overturn it. Um, why? That's why I'm excited about this guest coming on because I, I personally don't understand it. I'll never understand why predominantly men, these are all governors who happen to be men, have this passion. And this is also true for state legislatures too have this passion for what I would say is falsely a passion for life. Because the same state you just mentioned, let's use Texas, for example, the same state that seems to be so worried about heartbeat laws had a senator who disappeared and was derelict of duty when there was a massive power outage in that state. Same governor, by the way, who was responsible for the grid going down. So where's the quality of life passion there? It's for the unborn, but once you once you are born we just don't give a damn about you. That's how the GOP wants to play this. Not all, but as we're seeing some hesitancy from Senator Collins and Murkowski, shockingly women. It. I, I'm, I'm apoplectic. Uh, I'm also not surprised either that this has been a battle that's been on the horizon for years, and I'll never for the life of me understand how how people can live with themselves when they say things about being pro-life, but they're nowhere to be found in matters of the death penalty, nowhere to be found matters of the discussion of war, um, child poverty, homelessness, all matters that should have that same level of energy are never met with that same level. But it seems on this particular issue, Republicans seem to stand strong on. And it seems to be basically catapulted by a movement that began so many years ago that this has helped galvanize the party to this day. Um, it, It boggles my mind. But again, I'm not surprised because this is for far too many men in this country. They think they have the right to make a decision. On what happens with women's bodies, and again, I'm glad that you know you and I both, as men, are going to have a woman on this show right. to have this conversation. Who's also, you know, a journalist who's done some great reporting about this. But this conversation is living way too many times in the presence of men, old men particularly,
2: and we're seeing the p- position of it. Listen, I, I there's a couple things I wanted to say there, and I rarely, you know, feel passionate enough to give a strong opinion unless it's something that I'm well versed in. Uh, I'm not a woman. Uh, women should have the right to do whatever they want with their bodies. For the people that listen to this show that say, hey, what about the vaccine mandates? What about my body, my choice? Well, here's the problem. You can't cough a pregnancy onto me. You can cough COVID onto me. And we've maintained that you don't have to get vaccinated. You should. Nick and I are both vaccinated and boosted. You don't have to. You should. Also, if your employer wants you to get vaccinated, that's a private company. You don't have a constitutional right to work at Walmart. Sorry. Kick rocks. them the brakes. So- I've always maintained that it is your body, your choice, but in that regard, it's, it's something totally different because you're trying to return to a workforce and you affect people around you. Pregnancy doesn't affect anybody around them. It affects that individual person. So it should be up to the person uh, that's carrying that child that what they want to do with that body, uh, with their body, excuse me. Um, so that was the first thing. The second thing is I saw something that was pretty funny and, and I say funny in, in not the way that, you know, people are laughing at, but, um, somebody posted this on Instagram the other day. Uh, I'm still I'm still reeling that five folks who lied in the job application for a lifetime gig given to them by two guys who lost a popular vote appear set to overturn a 50-year-old law that 70% of Americans want to keep and affects 100% of women and many men. So many numbers in that, but it's so accurate. And you know, I saw a Fox News poll the other day, uh, Mike Emanuel actually, a uh, buddy of the show here, had this up as he was doing some reporting from the White House and, and speaking on the White House lawn, um, 63% of people from, this is a Fox News poll, folks, 63% of people feel Roe v. Wade should stand as it is. Only 27% of people want to overturn it. So when you see numbers like that and you say, man, that's from a poll of a network that is largely viewed by conservatives, why are we here today? Why are we here right now? Nobody better in the next segment. To answer that, as somebody who is not only a journalist covering this, but really wrote a fantastic piece about the history of how we got here, how the Republican Party kind of got uh, a ground swelling in all of this, from Ronald Reagan to Pat Buchanan, Deepa's going to come back after the break and educate us all. Deepa, when we come back. Nick, today's episode of the program is presented by the good folks at Athletic Green's Athletic Greens, Nick. What do you know about the good stuff that they're making over there at Athletic Greens? It's incredible stuff. Um, I talked about this on the show before. <laughs> my, my
1: breakfast typically now is a protein shake. You know, just blender bottle, throw your stuff in there, shake it up, coffee, and I'm, I'm good, and it's helping me a lot health-wise. Athletic Greens lets me get to do that you know, focusing on greens, just being a, a more protein um, for anyone that's looking to do any meal replacement or just kind of boost your energy, but do it in a healthy way, you know,
2: cut carbs and, you know, make healthier choices. Athletic greens is fantastic. I love that you just said that, Nick, because one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. It's a special blend of ingredients. It supports your gut health, your your nervous system, your immune system, your energy recovery, focus and aging. All of these things are included with athletic greens. Listen, right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water, just like Nick said, every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it real easy, Athletic Greens is giving listeners of the Can We Please Talk podcast a free, Nick, free, I know that's your favorite number, a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D, five free travel packs with your first purchase. Let me say that again, five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash emerging or just go into our show notes page, you'll see the link right there, athleticgreens.com backslash emerging. Take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All right, like we mentioned, she's a fantastic reporter, political reporter over at NPR, and that is Deepa Shivaram Deepa, Mike, Leon, Nick Saveri, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us. Thanks for having me. Deepa, you know, I was reading your article and and listening to your fantastic voice earlier today on that piece that that you did. And it's kind of why I reached out to you to invite you on the program, because before we get into all of that, I I wanted to get into the high level 30,000 foot view of for people that may have not caught up with everything that's happened from, you know, the draft opinion being released and leaked to Politico to the confirmation from Justice Roberts uh, of its authenticity to what this means about women's rights and, and and what states may enact laws once this is overturned. Can you give a 30,000-foot view summation for our audience that's tuning into this?
0: Yeah, I'll try to. Okay, so we saw earlier this week, Monday night, um, this draft opinion from Justice Alito that was released um, and published in Politico. It was a leaked report. This is really not the norm. This is not something that happens. This Supreme Court of the United States is something that uh, as part of its, you know, almost legitimacy is, is, an, is an institution that doesn't see the kind of, you know, kind of leaking and the kind of, you know, back and forth comms shop stuff that happens with the White House and Capitol Hill, for example. Uh, the Supreme Court is, is pretty locked down when it comes to this kind of stuff. And so to see a leaked report of a draft opinion uh, before it is even released or anything like that is, is pretty extraordinary. So that really rocked um, a lot A lot uh, with this decision over Roe and also just the fact that it was um, leaked in the first place. So that's kind of two separate things going on. Um, The opinion from Justice Alito, the draft opinion, I should say, uh, essentially says that the court is posed to roll back the protections of abortion rights that were outlined in the 1973 Supreme Court case of Roe v. Wade. Um, That has been the Supreme Court law of the land to protect the right to an abortion in this country since 1973. A 1992 case uh, called Planned Parenthood versus Casey was another um, abortion case that upheld the Roe decision, uh, but kind of changed things around. And we can get that into into that a little bit later. But this all of that to say, this is a a huge um, shift in what the court has said for a long time about um, the right to an abortion. And that really rocked uh, a lot of, of what folks have been talking about and saying for a long time, it's it's kind of hard to say you could be shocked by this given uh, a lot of the other cases that have been brought up, uh, given the justices that President Trump has put on the court uh, and a lot of the legal conversations that have been going on. This is, is not exactly unexpected, uh, but it is still really shocking nonetheless. And so that's what you saw happen Monday night. Um, pretty much immediately there were protests outside the Supreme Court and throughout D.C., um, folks on Tuesday coming in who were um, both pro-abortion and anti-abortion, all kind of culminating outside of the Supreme Court. Um, And what you've seen from politicians is is Democrats, people like Chuck Schumer, who's the Senate majority leader, um, vowing to kind of put this to a vote in in Congress, because Congress has not codified um, on a legislative level the the protections of abortion, uh, the right to an abortion, and so um, that kind of sort of has taken a political turn as well, where a lot of Republicans haven't really um, said much except talk about how egregious this leak was, and then Democrats um, have been saying that you know every senator in the United States Senate needs to, to have their vote on this. Uh, put on the record. And then from the White House, you've seen um, a little bit of like a a righteous anger from from Vice President Kamala Harris. And you've seen uh, Joe Biden himself also talk about a little bit about what this means for other um, protections as well. Things like same sex marriage, um, things like access to birth control. There is a lot on the line here uh, if the Supreme Court were to move forward with this this exact draft opinion and, and revoke Roe versus Wade.
1: But you mentioned you know, both cases, obviously the Roe case and the, and the Casey decision as well. You know, for our audience, Supreme Court decisions are a little like the game of telephone. Like from the moment that decisions passed, over time we tend to forget the impact, but also what is the actual legal standing you know that came out of that precedent. Could you take us through from the Roe decision through Casey? What became, as you put it, the law of the land? To just help put context into what the decision is what Casey sort of speaks to and where we are now with what that decision's impact is.
0: Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot to take in. And, you know, I'm not a constitutional scholar. I'm not a legal scholar. So this is to the best of my understanding, right. With the caveat that I I am no, by no means an expert on any of this, but um Roe v. Wade essentially established uh, a protection to abortion and set up something uh, called the trimester framework. And so the way we think about pregnancy, right? So for a pregnant person, you have the first trimester, second trimester, and third trimester. uh, Roe v. Wade said that within the first trimester of a pregnancy, um, the pregnant person had a right um, to an abortion and could seek an abortion. The second trimester, you can kind of allow states to start adding restrictions um, and regulations on when a fetus could be aborted. And by the third trimester, um, it was pretty much agreed upon uh, in Roe that you would not really have access to abort the fetus um, unless there was like, a reason to protect the life of the pregnant person um, and the life of of the mother. And so that was kind of the very general overview of what the trimester framework set up in Roe v. Wade. You have to understand also that like pre-1973, like pre-Roe v. Wade, um, abortion was not Legal in this country. Um, and states slowly throughout like the 60s and like into the 19- early 1970s, when you see um, Roe v. Wade passed, there were some states that started to loosen up their abortion restrictions. And so that's kind of where this, the country stood before Roe v. Wade was passed in 1973. It wasn't really something that was really rallied about or politicized or talked about the way it is today. It was kind of this thing that was sort of happening in the background, and Roe v. Wade really put abortion front and center into a national movement. And so that was what happened in 1973. After that decision, you saw a lot of states kind of try to like futz with things and sort of see like where where do these legal protections really stand? Like how far can we really go here? And that takes you up uh, to Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey. And that was a case out of Pennsylvania where in the late 80s, the state of Pennsylvania changed their abortion laws. And they said they are started adding these like little restrictions here and there on when a pregnant person, you know, would be allowed to get an abortion. There was things like a 24 hour waiting period. There was um, a lot that they had in there about um, if you were a minor, you had to get a parental permission essentially, or you had parental consent to get an abortion. They had a clause in there that was talking about how if you were a married woman, you had to um, basically say or like confirm that you had um, communicated with your spouse, your husband, uh, that you were, you had an intent to get an abortion. And so they had changed all of these little laws and that added restrictions and made it harder essentially to get an abortion. That went up um, through a district court and the district court in Pennsylvania ruled um, that those changes were unconstitutional, that it violated Roe v. Wade. It then went to an appellate court. And this is a crazy fun fact there was a judge on that appellate court, and that judge was Samuel Alito. Uh, the same judge who is now sitting on the Supreme Court with this draft opinion, the world just works in funny ways. And so that case went up to um, the appellate court and the appellate court both affirmed and kind of like negated some of what the district court said. So the appellate court said that, you know, some of these restrictions, they're fine. But the clause about um, a married woman having to seek permission essentially from her husband was unconstitutional. And then that appellate court decision went up to the Supreme Court and it was argued, Um, in front of the Supreme Court in 1992. And that decision essentially changed things a little bit because the thing to keep in mind about Casey is that it upheld Roe. It said that Roe v. Wade is the law of the land and we are not negating that. But it created this clause or this phrase that you should keep in mind that's called undue burden. And it said that restrictions... Uh, regulations around when a person could get an abortion um, were allowable if it did not cause an undue burden on the person seeking an abortion. If you're wondering, what does an undue burden mean? That's a great question. I had the same question. A lot of people have the same question. And the reality is that that's up to different judges around the country to decide what that means. an undue burden is essentially like the way it's framed is like, you know, obstacles. The, the word obstacle is used in that decision of like, if there is something in the, in the way of your path, if you are seeking an abortion, that is an undue burden. Here's the problem. When you apply that in society, a, a burden for someone who is wealthy, has access to a car, has, you know, access to a nearby abortion clinic is not going to be the same burden that someone who is rural, in a rural area, who's poorer, uh, who doesn't have access to a vehicle, like there's so many different things that determine whether something is a burden or not. Um, And the law is not exactly applied equally in those cases. And so that is basically, 1973, Roe v. Wade was a huge pivotal moment when it comes to abortion and access to abortion and abortion rights in this country. But Casey really reframed a lot of that. And this uh, ability to frame the abortion rights Um, conversation in terms of this undue burden is really where things have stood since 1992. So basically, the whole trimester framework was negated, they took that out, and they created this undue burden um, way of making decisions about um, abortion rights. And that has really opened the door for this massive gray area for all of these states to pass things like 24 hour waiting periods, 72 hour waiting periods. Um, There are some restrictions in states about, you know, you need to have a second doctor come in and uh, allow uh, the abortion to happen, or, you know, hospitals have to have certain regulations, Um, parental consents, informed consents. There's all these different barriers now that are added in. um, And these judges on individual levels are deciding whether or not that's an undue burden. And so I don't know if that answers your question, but that kind of takes you through a little bit of the progress here from like what the abortion movement and the anti-abortion movement, you know, looked like uh, pre-Roe v. Wade up until Casey and and how that's really impacted um, abortion access uh, in the past, you know, 20 years.
2: Deepa, um, and by the way, you can read Deepa's uh, recent article on the history of anti-abortion rights, even though she gave you that fantastic summation there, but go check it out on NPR.com. I wanted to ask you, because we've had a a few people on from the different media outlets, and I was watching one of them, uh, Mike Emanuel, a chief Washington correspondent over at Fox News. And he was talking about a recent Fox poll that shows 63% of a Fox News poll, Deepa, by the way, former Fox News producer, you're looking at one uh, right here. So a a Fox poll showed 63% of people feel Roe v. Wade should stand as is. Only 27% of people want to overturn it. Trump carried 46% of the popular vote. So it's safe to say that there are some people within that circular group that are probably pro choice, excuse me, people that are Trump supporters. How does someone like me make sense of all that? How would you make sense of all of that? That 63% of people feel from this poll that, that Roe v. Wade should stand as is. And then on the second part, the worst thing to do, a two part question for you How do you think this will play into the midterms?
0: Yeah, those are both really good questions. I have not seen that Fox News poll, so I can't really talk on that specifically, but I can say that overall polling, and this is a number of polls. This is not just one poll. NPR has done polling on this, ABC has done polling on this, the Washington Post has done polling on this, show again and again and again that overturning Roe versus Wade is not a popular decision in this country. A majority of Americans, over 50%, um, support keeping. Roe versus Wade. There was also polling to show that Americans, despite the fact that they support theoretically what Roe versus Wade is saying, also support some restrictions on abortion. So when you look at those numbers, it's not, you know, 57%, like you said, whatever the Fox News poll said, or, or, you know, 54%, which is somewhat, some other polls are saying it's not the number doesn't necessarily mean that everyone supports abortion without any restrictions. Um, there, You have to keep in mind that people also pretty overwhelmingly favor some kind of restrictions on abortion, which keep in mind is something that Roe laid out already. Like Roe was not saying unrestricted abortion in this country is the law of the land. There were restrictions set up within Roe, like we talked about with that trimester framework. Um, and so it, it is interesting because The court right now with this draft opinion, if that becomes uh, the final decision, is not doing something that tracks with public opinion. And that's really interesting to keep in mind, because when you look at Planned Parenthood versus Casey, if you read through that decision, there's a part of it that talks specifically about how it might not be popular to uphold Roe. But the court has to do what is like legally best, right? They write about this in the decision that it might not be politically popular, it might not be socially popular, but that is not the role of the Supreme Court. Their role is to interpret the law to the best of their abilities. And their interpretation in 1992 was to uphold Roe v. Wade as the law of the land. And so even though it was politically unpopular at that point, and maybe people weren't as you know supportive um, they recognized uh, the institution of the Supreme Court, these justices recognized um, that that was not their job. Their job was not to do what was politically popular, their job was to interpret um, legal precedent. And, you know, it is very uncommon for the court to sort of deviate on what they call stare decisis, which is which is abiding by the precedent that the court has already set. And that's what Casey did with Roe. You know, they changed some things around. There were some added things with this whole undue burden situation, but they upheld Roe as the law of the land. And so to see this draft opinion from Alito to completely negate not one, you know, previous Supreme Court ruling, but two with both. Casey and Rose, is pretty extraordinary. Um, And so it is difficult to interpret that as a a regular person who's maybe seeing this happen and also seeing these poll numbers. uh, It doesn't really square and and it's not normal. I think that's important to point out that this is not really a typical situation that's going on. Um, So keep that in mind uh, as you see more of of the polling with with public opinion. And I'm sure we'll see more polls come out um, about this the other question you had, um, I might need to repeat. Oh, midterms. Yeah, this is really interesting. This is really interesting. And it's a little too soon to say I'm someone who prefers to have the whole picture before you sort of start throwing theories out there, because again, this is still a draft opinion. We don't have an official ruling from the court. Um, but so far, you know, you've seen, like I said before, you've seen Democrats sort of say, like, we we need, uh, you know, every senator to to make clear where they stand on this. Um, if you saw Elizabeth Warren's speech outside the Supreme Court the other day, um, you know, I covered her primary campaign and it is a rare day that you see her get as animated. And, you know, she's a very passionate person. She's very fired up. But that was definitely a different flavor of Elizabeth Warren uh, that we saw this week. And so you see the kind of anger from some more progressive members of the party. Um, And then you see Republicans who are spending their time um, talking about this leak and they're really kind of highlighting that a little bit more. Um, I did speak to some people earlier this week who who did talk a little bit about the potential political fallout for this. Um, And their argument is that abortion and the topic of abortion and restricting abortion has been uh, a huge, huge, huge issue for a lot of single issue Republican voters. They come out and they vote in elections um, because of abortion. They are extremely passionate about this issue. And so there is theoretically a world in which um, maybe fewer Republicans turn out and in in the same numbers that they would have in the past uh, because, you know, maybe they perceive this abortion battle as, as already having been successful. Um, I would be a little bit cautious about that perspective. I, I think it's a little bit too soon to say. And, and as we know, in a midterm election, it usually doesn't fare well for the party that's in the White House. Um, so Republicans already have that going for them. And at the same time, we're seeing mass inflation and a lot of other issues and the economy's not doing great. And there's like a lot to talk about and a lot that, you know, conservative voters could could still get really fired up about. And so uh, I don't think you can really peg any kind of decisions on, on one issue. But it definitely will be interesting to see, I think, on both sides, like how how voters respond to this um, and see what happens once once the the ruling really does come out and it's no longer a draft.
1: But One of the things I liked about the an article you wrote recently about really the history, um, not just of the decision, but uh, of the anti-abortion movement in this country. Uh, something I wonder about as I read it is, was there consistency in that movement of beyond abortion, because this seems to come down to a pro-life or a quali- the advancement of the quality of life argument, but did that argument for them or these folks seem consistent with also opposing, say, the death penalty or poverty or, um, hunger, things like that. I, I, I was just curious, you know, when you're reporting it, you were sharing the timeline, like did these folks, were they really about that life in terms of ensuring that, um, you know, all people had, you know, the opportunity to live a better life.
0: You know, it's been really interesting to track that movement a little bit because they themselves as a movement have also really like shifted here and there, like between religious leaders and political leaders. um, in terms of their like messaging right because uh it's not like the like the way that they sort of you know who who they place the blame on like you know it's it's really interesting to kind of watch how that has been woven in throughout the history of the anti-abortion movement um and you'll see leaders now and and folks who are are really passionate about it now like they don't really blame women the same way they used to or like you know who takes the onus on um, in that movement has really shifted um over time but you got to keep in mind that like the ultimate goal of the movement um has never been about you know supporting people who are pregnant and and you know maybe aren't economically stable enough to to have that child like that's not the goal of the movement they have never been worried about that their goal has always been to move towards a ban on abortions and so you know they can offer up a lot of of other I think rhetoric but in reality like you're bringing up all these other issues and that's not the goal the primary goal of of this movement um they are I would argue very very focused They're very singularly focused, Um, and so all of these other uh, repercussions that pop up when you do restrict abortion um, are not really tackled, and you can see that in our politics. I mean, you're you're not seeing Republicans out here in one foul swoop saying, oh, we should restrict abortion and also support paid family leave.
2: Yeah. Listen, you have been fantastic. But before we let you go, I want you to put on that journalist hat one more time. As you're talking to two former journalist grads here from Rutgers University, um, I've been shocked about this, not so much in the coverage of it, but just that it's been weighted equally. Okay. Mm. The leak versus what the contents of the leak are. We know which networks have focused on the former versus the latter. As a journalist who wants to scoop and break news and you rely on sources for information, what do you make of the equally weighted attention that the leak has garnered versus the contents of the leak?
0: I'm someone who believes you can walk and chew gum at the same time. I don't think there's a world in which we should look at this and say, well, one is definitely more important than the other, and we should focus all of our time on that. Um, I think- People can be working on different stories at the same time. I think that news organizations have a lot of reporters who are working on different things at the same time. Just because I'm reporting on the history of the anti-abortion movement doesn't mean that I, you know, that my colleagues shouldn't also be reporting on other issues as well and reporting on this topic in different ways as well. Um, There's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of things going on, and and people who are consuming news and who are voters and who are you know seeking information should be able to seek information on on all of the things that are happening. Um, this is a decision that, if it becomes the new you know law and 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 new legal precedent, will affect. A lot of different people in a lot of different ways. And I think as a journalist, um, the thing that I am most concerned about, and mm, this is something that applies to not just this particular topic, but all topics is making sure that our reporting is inclusive of all of those people. Um, and the people who are the most marginalized and the people who don't really get to see their stories maybe showcased, uh, you know, in, a, in news coverage, uh, making sure that when we talk about, you know, what this means for, for people, for pregnant people all over the country, for families all over the country, that we are making our reporting as inclusive as possible. Um, and so that does mean that in, in a situation like this, in a, in a reporting cycle like this, that the leak is, is really a big part of this story. Um, but there are a lot of other parts of the story as well that, that need to be told.
2: Deepa Shivaram, she is a fantastic reporter, NPR politics reporter. Please check out her work over at NPR.com. Deepa, I can't thank you enough for coming on the program. Dot org. org. I knew it was org. <laughs> That will get edited out. Deepa, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us today. Truly appreciate it. Continued success to you and st- stay safe, please.
0: Thank you. You guys too.
2: Nick, today's sponsor of the program is EJ Gift Cards. EJGiftCards.com is the easiest way to buy and sell gift cards. You need to buy a last minute present for a friend or a family member. Go to EJGiftCards.com because they have hundreds of brands to choose from, from food options like Panera, Red Lobster, Olive Garden, apparel like Forever 21, Gap, Nordstrom's and more. And what makes EJ Gift Cards amazing is, Nick, let me ask you a question. You ever get a gift card from someone to a store that you know you're not gonna shop there? Oh, all the time. <laughs> and And then you can't do anything about it. You're stuck, right? That's exactly. Yeah. So you take that gift card, Nick, right now, go to ejgiftcards.com, enter in the gift card numbers, the dollar value, you get an offer in seconds to buy the gift card. How easy is that? Come on. That's simple. That's that's awesome. Right, try trying to Isn't get rid it? of some of these gift cards. It's great. <laughs> Head to our show notes page right now. You'll see a link there for ejgiftcards.com. You can get offers, discounts, and more on buying and selling gift cards today. Head to our show notes page, ejgiftcards.com. Our thank yous to Deepa Shivaram there. Uh, NPR.org, Nick, NPR.org. Okay. I'm not kidding. I go to NPR all the time. It's, it's literally on my tab browsers. I mentioned it in the first, first episode. What did I mention in terms of, su- of sources that you should be diversifying when you're looking for commonalities and articles, right? in facts. I said NPR. I said Yahoo News, AP News, Bloomberg, Reuters. It shouldn't just be the conventional three of CNN, Fox, and MSNBC. And if you go back there, I said NPR.org. And then today, I said NPR.com. But either way, Deepa Shivaram, fantastic journalist over at NPR. And and no joke, check out the article that she did on the history. But then she also had, there was a piece that she did. uh, If you don't know, if you're not familiar with NPR's site, that you can listen to the articles. And a lot of the times, the journalists that have written the articles, uh, they will actually voice over the articles. And she interviewed a couple of different professors that have been studying this, teach classes on this in terms of the history, the lead up, what what the, what the Republican Party has gotten swelled up into this from Reagan to Pat Buchanan. Um, it was really fantastic stuff listening to it. I can listen to her talk all day about this. But at the core of this, there's still issues, right? Like, where do, where do we go from here? It's still a draft opinion. Nothing has been set in stone, Right. We still don't know how the court, will they feel political pressure when they come back? Katanji Brown-Jackson will now be back after you know Justice Breyer retires at the end of this term. So it's still a 6-3, uh, you know, obviously conservative majority, but a new face to maybe sway somebody the other way, right? We've seen Justice Robert swayed and Gorsuch swayed on a couple of different things. Nick is shaking his head no, and I agree with that, but the point is, it's still a draft opinion. We're still not anywhere near there. I thought she gave you a really good summation of that. We talked about in the first segment, the different states that are ready to almost pounce on this like a fumble in a football game. Nick, uh, your final thoughts on not only Deepa and everything that she mentioned, but the overall issue at hand.
1: Yeah, I, I, Deepa was great. I think her reporting on the history of this case uh, and its legacy is a must-read. just to really get some helpful context. And she admitted, she's not a constitutional scholar, but she did a great job. She undersold herself a little bit on how well versed she is on on the case. Um, Yeah, no, the only thing I'll say is, Mike, you've brought up a couple of times about, it's a draft, like you're offering a disclaimer here. Uh, My counter to that is that's written for a reason. Even if it's sitting somewhere in a drawer somewhere, what it indicates is that there is a justice on the Supreme Court who has a very clear view of this precedent and what it means. And there's a larger conversation that we're not going to have here, but I think all of us as a country need to have, which is if we have justices on the court who are walking in with a political persuasion, then what is our responsibility as voters to be mindful of that persuasion? And that leads up to the way you vote for senators, the way you vote for for presidents, being mindful. Again, I'm the education person on this show. Civic
2: people, this stuff matters. Elections matter. That's right no better way to sum it up than that. We'll we'll follow up in the coming weeks. Uh, We had some more guests that are coming on about this topic, about how this will potentially shape the midterm. So more on that in the coming weeks from this program, a video for this podcast. You want to go and check out what Deepa looks like. You can go to youtube.com and watch the video of this interview, audio podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google, et cetera, et cetera. Please follow us, subscribe, rate, and review us. It really helps. Uh, also, shout out to ACAST, our hosting platform. We couldn't do it without them each and every week. IG, TikTok, Twitter, at Can We Please Talk podcast on Twitter, at Can We Please Talk. Uh, leave out the E and please. I cannot thank each and every one of you for listening to this program, the feedback we have gotten from people, whether negative or positive uh, is truly helpful for Nick and I, and I can't. We can't do it without the listeners that tune into this program each and every week. As always, I am Mike Leon, folks. We're at thirteen thousand followers
1: on Instagram. That's just one metric that, that just blew me away when That's I right. saw it. Uh, just grateful for all the follows, grateful for all for all the attention and support. Elections matter,
2: folks. <laughs> I'm Nick Savarek. See everybody next time.
1: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo.